Welcome to Phoenix Foundation, an episode-by-episode podcast review of CBS's action-adventure series, MacGyver. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be tackling Season 1, Episode 14, Countdown. The original air date for this episode was February 5th, 1986. It was directed by Stan Jolly. And it was written, uh, co-written by David Ketchum and Tony DeMarco. Um, again, no opening gambit there, so yeah. retired at this point. But yeah, why don't we get into a brief description of uh, the episode? Well, this episode deals with a bomb threat on a cruise liner, the Victoria, and MacGyver is sent in uh, with a friend, uh, old Vietnam buddy, who uh, they were part of a bomb defusing squad. And uh, so they're called in as local experts to come in and try to defuse the bombs if they can on the ship. Right, and I think this is the first and last episode to make mention of his work as a, a bomb diffuser yeah, in it, Vietnam. It's kind of it's kind of a weird callback, and even even saying that he's a Vietnam veteran is a little strange it, too. It feels like it's kind of out of nowhere, and it doesn't come back. Yeah, because because uh, like from what uh, in uh, Flames End, it was ten years prior. And, or 13 or something like yeah. that. Somewhere in that range. So some, somewhere in there, he went to Vietnam and back. Yeah. <laughs> somewhere. Maybe after he got off the ship where he was cooking <laughs> that he'd yeah. signed them both up for. Yeah. It's, it's very it's very strange. The I don't know if I like the continuity of all this. Yeah. Um, and even MacGyver being in Vietnam adds like a weird, a weird a- aspect to his character. But I feel like if it does at all, that it's a very temporary one because they really they really don't touch on it again. Mm-hmm. So we don't really think of him as a Vietnam vet beyond this point. Right. Um, yeah, but why don't we get into uh, the, the the fuller description of the episode? Uh, the episode opens up with a cruise ship, the Victoria, out on the Pacific. They even give the exact coordinates of 40 degrees north, 165 degrees east. I'm going to bring this up because of something I'll bring up later. Did you look up where that is? is I that... did look it up. And, you know, it's actually very close to where they had it on the map. Okay. But that's not my problem. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll get into that later. Well, I have a, a small problem with it, which is just that in the establishing shots of the ship, you can see that it's the Vista Fjord. It's not the Victoria. Mm. Um, the Vista Fjord. What's that? It's got a V. <laughs> it does start with a V. Um, it actually, the, the Vista Fjord uh, sold last year um, in January for $14 million and was delivered to its new home in Burma, hmm. uh, where our second episode took place, where it's going to serve as a floating hotel called the the Oasia. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was the last cruise ship built in the UK. Very interesting. That was an interesting fact. But God, the actual, and it was in. It has, has it been in operation all this time, or has it just been? Has it, it has, been, yeah. Wow. Up, up until last year, it was. It was called the Saga Ruby for a while, um, and then uh, and now it's being changed to the Oasia, um, and the passenger capacity of the actual Vista Fjord is only six hundred and fifty-five people. So they Although, were over capacity then. <laughs> yeah, the, the Victoria had almost twice as many people on board as it had yeah. capacity for typical Titanic situation. Yeah, it's just like are there enough lifeboats? Yeah. Well, for the normal capacity, there are. Uh, so we open up. Things seem pretty normal on the boat. Uh, we're introduced to Carol Tanner, who I, I, I don't know if she's second in command or third. I think she's third. Because it's not clear how many people – well, we'll get into what happens next where, where there's an explosion on board. And right. we're not, it's not clear how many people are killed in this explosion. Yeah. But um, you know they're out on the – they're up on the bridge, and she's actually walking in from the, the weather facts room, what they call it, with a hurricane warning. And I really like this line 
where she's coming up to the captain with the warning and says, uh, you know, we got a hurricane. We're being notified. And the captain says, what are they calling her? And, and then she goes, Henry. Like, like, like. <laughs> He's assuming that the the hurricane is a woman. Yeah, yeah, and like, and she kind of like counters with they're calling it Henry. Um, well, it, wouldn't he have known that though? Because it doesn't it work that they they do a year of female names and then a year of male names and then they do them in alphabetical order. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure because yeah, alphabetical order for sure is that's always the way. But yeah, they seem to alternate. They definitely alternate between male and female okay. names. Um, it seems like he should have known in advance what the gender was going to be, but maybe not. Yeah. He's he's seasoned, but he's not that seasoned, maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so they get the storm warning, and he he just kind of casually tells them to divert course when they get a phone call, uh, from the mainland saying that there has been a threat made against the ship. Right. So the captain asks for the, basically the the head crew to go and meet in the weather facts room, where we've had a quick establishing shot of a bomb ticking down. Right. Uh, just just a basic bomb. Like, the, well, we're going to see much more elaborate bombs later in the episode. Right. But this was just a basic, like, I guess a warning, just to show that he wasn't kidding around, that he had managed to sneak explosives onto the ship. Yeah. And in that, when going in to, to meet with the other crew members in the weather facts room, it blows up, and this forces... Carol Tanner into the command of the ship. Right, and uh, the the actor who played the original captain, uh, Burke Burns, mm-hmm. um, he actually did the voice of uh, Sarah's dad in Land Before Time. Oh, three horns don't play with long necks. Right, exactly. But um, he he does he has a lot of work. His IMDb page is very long. Yeah. But that was for me the most important thing outside of MacGyver was oh, that he Land Before was Time. the voice of Sarah Topps's father in Land Sarah Before Topps. Time. Uh, Carol Tanner, who in this episode is played by Ellen Bree. I it's funny, like I, I I watch a lot of cartoons, as you know, we both do. Sure. Um, I like to think that I have a pretty good ear for voices. So as soon as she started speaking, I started I recognized her voice immediately, and I couldn't think. It took me like a a, a couple of minutes just like of listening to her talk to get it, and I actually recognized her voice from the Star Trek episode that she did. Uh, I believe the episode is called Quality of Life. Um, side tangent here. It's it's about she's she's like she's an engineer who develops these uh, robots um, who start becoming self aware, right? But uh, and Data's trying to prove that they are, and she doesn't believe him. But but I recognize her voice immediately. I was like, oh, I was like, oh god, yeah, she's another Star Trek person. And because uh, you know, obviously, TV actors they they make their rounds. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I always get excited when there's a Star Trek person. <laughs> But now back in the United States, uh, MacGyver's being called in to... Well, we start with him at his home. Right, um, right. Which is... Uh, oh, features that's right. the, the second appearance of uh, Susan, who... Uh, he's, he's still referring to her as Susan, but the way her name is spelt for the credits looks like Suzanne. Yeah, me. it's... When you put the Z in there and you end it with A-N-N-E, that's typically pronounced Anne. Yeah, and but it is also MacGyver's... Uh, kind of mo to nickname or shorten people's True. names. Yeah, is Susan really that much shorter than Suzanne? Though? <laughs> it's the same amount of syllables, right? <laughs> it, it's it's arguable. <laughs> but uh, he's showing off to uh, Susan, who we are now um, explaining is his landlady. Mm-hmm. She had kind of a vague um, presence in the last episode. Yeah. We don't know if this is like a girlfriend that he just ditched to go help out his ex girlfriend mm-hmm. or what's going on, but. 
Um, here, he very specifically refers to her as his landlady. Yeah. This, is, um, this is like a very Mr. Wizard kind of moment. Yeah. Like, let me show you this experiment with these robots that I've done here. <laughs> yeah, and she's he, so skeptical. Yeah, he starts on his balcony drinking orange juice, and he says, I'm going to show her a neat trick or something like that. And then instantly we're in the kitchen. He's he's holding a, a, a Futaba remote, the yeah, same kind like of remote a, they control the DeLorean with. Yeah, it's really like elaborate remote control. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't only control the robot, it also apparently controls his refrigerator, because mm-hmm. the first thing he does is open the refrigerator door with it, and then a robot that he refers to as, it seems like it's the joke was that the robot's name is Roberta, Yeah. but I'm, he, it sounds like he says Roberta to me, I don't <laughs> know if it's a, it's a Minnesota thing. Now we um, put Roberta to work. But yeah, so then uh, Roberta comes over and Roberta. Uh, takes an egg out of the refrigerator mm-hmm. and drops it on susan's foot yeah ruining her shoe that's when he gets the call and that's yeah the phone rings while she's cleaning up her shoe and it, it looks pretty messed up actually yeah <laughs> when she's like she goes to scrub the stuff off and you just see this really dark mess like yeah soaking uh, into it. but uh i love the way he answers his phone whoever this is <laughs> like i owe you a debt of gratitude or something and then like... when he finds out it's pete he's like uh, uh... maybe not because <laughs> he's not excited about going back to work all yeah time. Uh, so MacGyver arrives at the DXS, and as soon as he gets there, he spots an old friend of his, Charlie Robinson, played by Stephen Williams. And uh, Stephen Williams uh, has been in like a number of other things, but one of the things I most noted from is the X Files. Yeah, I, his character was one of my favorite characters on mm-hmm. that show. I just love he was Mister X, right? Yeah, he replaced the Deep Throat. Right, and originally this character was supposed to be a woman, I think. Really? Um, and then uh, they, they actually... <laughs> well, then they screwed up. <laughs> well, they, they... Yeah. Should, Mr. X? How could you play Mr. X? Um, but yeah, no, it was a it was a woman, and they had actually shot some of her scenes, um, and then the producers had decided that it wasn't really working out the way that they had it in mind, and so they replaced her with uh, Stephen Williams. Mm. Uh, Mulder would, like, whenever he had a problem that he couldn't solve himself, he basically put, like, masking tape in an X on his window. Yeah, yeah. And this guy would just be there the next day. Um, but I, I just love that as, like, a call sign. Like, somehow this guy has eyes everywhere. Yeah, like, he's constantly... They're constantly watching Mulder enough to know when he makes a signal. Yeah. <laughs> I just... Sorry, this is, I just pictured, like, this. Now his Mulder's window has this constant X from all the times he has to peel the tape yeah. on and off. He's just, <laughs> it's just, like, permanently glued, sticky there. It makes me think of, like, any scene in a movie where there's people walking with a big sheet of glass and they tape an X on it so that people don't run through it, and that guy just keeps showing up, like... <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have a mystery <laughs> is there something i could help you with what no, no this just... is just we don't want people to run through the glass oh okay hey can i help you guys solve anything no 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 this is just this is for safety <laughs> but uh uh stephen williams also appeared on uh, the original 21 jump street um and a lot of the people who did that um appear in the movies the the 21 jump street and 22 oh, really? jump street yeah um the guys that co-directed the movie um phil lord and chris miller um, made a point to hire as many people from the original 21 Jump right. Street series as they could to bring back. In the first movie you had, obviously, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but yeah. there's a lot of people from the original series. Mm-hmm. Even, and like Holly Robinson Pete's in there for one scene. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so if, if you look through the credits for 21 Jump Street and see stuff that those people have done recently, you'll see a lot of them in 21 and 22 Jump Street. Nice. So I thought that was neat. And uh, Stephen Williams also comes uh, back for a three-part uh, appearance 
on Stargate SG-1. So I don't know if that was Richard Dean Anderson's doing, but mm. yeah, he came back for that series. I think it's really unfortunate to have a character who's a former Vietnam vet and having his, have his name be Charlie. Yeah, and it, I, I feel like when you're trying to shout to him, <laughs> everyone starts opening fire. Yeah, it's not the safest name to have uh, in, in combat in Vietnam. Also not, uh, it turns out, the safest name to have in the first season of MacGyver. Yeah, <laughs> oh my gosh. His, because, uh, yeah, his Charlie friends don't fare too well. Yeah. Ants, um, ants and bombs. Ants and bombs. Outside the outside the DXS office, they kind of have like this meeting. Like, they they very quickly set him up for an unfortunate <laughs> accident. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, I I need to j- take this job for the money. I got a kid on the way. Things are going so great, but you know, need a little extra money. I'm willing to take this risky job. Yeah. In order to to help pay for it, um, and it's twenty five thousand dollars, which again, this is the eighties, so a sizable a sizable yeah, yeah. chunk of money. I mean, that's a Heck, I mean, that's a year's salary for a lot of people. Sure. And uh, but I wonder what the, the – they tax it right away? They 1099 him for that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's he's above taxing as, as a mm-hmm. part of DXS. Yeah. It's external services because it's just under the table. Yeah. So they go upstairs and they talk to Pete and uh, they have the, – they have already have like the little makeshift command center going on, communication with the ship. They've hired a, a, an expert who's a former – uh, who's a police consultant now, but a former bomb expert, uh, Michael Donahue, uh, and uh, who served before uh, MacGyver and Charlie did it, in yeah, Vietnam. It, it, it's, it's hard to say if there was before or overlap, but they certainly uh, he he was already established at least, right? Because both Charlie and MacGyver knew him by name, right, from Vietnam, and uh, he was uh, Michael Donahue's uh, character was injured from his last bombing experience and lost a leg as a result right and he's played by uh michael cavanaugh who was in the the remake of dark shadows the early 90s remake of Mm. dark shadows um he played uh andre dupree in that and uh he also uh we we spoke a little bit about uh, the feature film the gauntlet when we were covering the macgyver episode the gauntlet yeah and he plays sort of a secondary villain in uh in the gauntlet pete lays out the plan now for them to fly to midway uh, I'm assuming Midway Island in the Pacific. Sure. And uh, from there, they're going to take a helicopter out to the ship. This yeah, is the where Huey is going to pick them up on. Th- this is where I have my problem with that because Midway Island, from that latitude and longitude, is thousands of miles away. And, and they're going to take this helicopter. They're going to the whole take a helicopter away. Well, like uh, that through a typhoon. To yeah, get to it's the like ship. this helicopter has to fly round trip two thousand miles. That's pretty ridiculous yeah. i don't think it's gonna make it and he doesn't have time to land because he has to turn around for his next mm-hmm. 26 hour flight <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a long flight yeah he, they only have what's like he says 10 and a half hours or something yeah exactly like the there there's almost no way yeah that they would make it i mean they granted it does take them a, like a long time to get there yeah but if um, they're going 100 miles an hour in this helicopter and they cross the 10 hours they cross the date line so maybe they actually have a day now <laughs> that's how that works no he gives them the time in in california time <laughs> yeah viking is the name of the bomber and he calls in with this like distorted audio recording and uh yeah like i would just, I could just hear him saying so yes you have 10 hours uh well that was 10 hours yesterday when i set the bomb when i recorded so. this <laughs> that's wednesday for you 
So, uh, yeah, very confusing. And when they fly into Midway, like, it's just a quick montage, but the, it's clearly not Midway Island. I'm sorry. Right, right. Nitpicky. Midway Island is, is, is still in use as an emergency runway yeah. for, if, you know, because, you know, there's not many islands out there. You know, a plane needs to make an emergency land. There's not many options. But it is such a tiny little island. It's, it was not an island. It's, it's what they call an atoll. It's a, it's a coral reef that yeah. has breached the surface and has been pounded enough to the point where it's kind of a dirty trees and some vegetation. But yeah. it, it's, it's big enough, obviously, for a jet. But when they show this establishing shot, you see, like, such a long, huge island with tiny little village, you know, like, towns and stuff set yeah, up. Yeah, there's yeah. all of us like, yeah, mid, that is not Midway. Right. But uh, that's a that's a small that's a minor detail, right? And when Pete is introducing them to this whole plan of landing at Midway and then taking the Huey to the ship, um, he's standing in front of this map of of the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. and gesturing at where the ship currently is. And, and the, this becomes the Dana Elkar title card, uh, right? When the when the title sequence gets updated for the next season, so they uh, they are in the helicopter now. They fly out to the ship. Uh, helicopter is about ready to crash because there's no way it has enough fuel to make it back. I don't know why he doesn't just land it. It it's so bizarre, right? I mean, I, there's definitely enough like surface area on this yeah. ship. Like almost any cruise ship that size, especially with an 1,100 passenger capacity, mm-hmm. would have a landing space for a helicopter. Or or even if not, be able to land it, get it close, close enough, enough that you could just drop things. Yeah, that you, yeah you could just take a you know you take a leap off. You, you might it might be like a six foot drop. At the most, but you do a tuck and roll, you're fine. And again, uh, worst case scenario, you're not going to pull up alongside the ship and then connect all the important bomb diffusing tools and then start lowering them from above the ocean. Like, yeah. You, you just drop that stuff from on top of the ship. But of course, something goes wrong when they try to lower the bag. Of course. Like the, and the... it's unclear whether this is a, a maneuvering of the Viking character or if this is just coincidentally... Oh. The, the winch failed on this helicopter and suddenly throws all of their bomb diffusing tools into the ocean. God, I never thought of that. I never thought never thought that, that the helicopter may have been sabotaged. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, I have no idea, obviously, but mm-hmm. he's apparently, like, quick enough that he can be on this ship thousands of miles away, setting bombs and then come back and record all this stuff. Well, well and that's the thing about the bombs, like, that they bring up later. They, they say that the bombs must have been placed there when the ship was in dry dock a month ago. Yeah. So he 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 had this somehow has been in in the planning stages for a while. Yeah, like what if, like, God, any number of things could have happened in that time when those in a month, like he waited a month to tell them that there were bombs on this ship that they never. That's, yeah. It just it just seems really bizarre. Yeah. Uh, the the time. What if they had been trying to clean it and accidentally like set one off? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. Suddenly they get a call from Viking. Hey, so that bomb, uh, shoot. Uh, I should have uh, called you guys earlier. Yeah. I planted some bombs a couple months ago. I forgot kind of where they are. <laughs> like, <that's laughs> where is that ship now? <laughs> <laughs> like, And that's the kind of funny thing, too, because they keep finding more bombs. I can just picture Donnie who's like, oh, man, yeah, I put three bombs. I thought there was only See, two. See, I thought, okay, because I said earlier you found the second one and there's a third one. I totally forgot. Yeah. Um, is there more? Do they have more bombs? <laughs> God, I really, I really should write things down <laughs> when I'm gonna commit this Just major terrorism. Just a terrorist. quick tally would be helpful. He's got like a like notches in his wrist. Ugh. Pick up milk. Four bombs. Uh, <laughs> so now uh, Charlie and Mac are forced to rappel down by using some cargo netting. Right. But Charlie seems overly impressed with MacGyver's 
like he's like well maybe we can use this cargo net he's like and charlie's like oh macgyver you're brilliant it's like it's Isn't rope it brilliant it's just rope he's we're using, just gonna lower down with a rope he's using rope as rope so <laughs> i don't i don't know how how the brilliant. forgotten use of rope <laughs> as a rope yeah um, I do like how they they set up the repelling lines with the killer beaners, right? Uh, like they kind of loop it through, the, so they have like this kind of like repelling control. I mean, that's a typical like rock climbing maneuver mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of cool, um, and uh, they as they they make it onto the ship, the helicopter leaves, and they meet Carol, who's now they they call inherited her inherited the role of captain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's she's not technically a captain, but they have to refer to her as captain as she is the next in command. Right. Um, she awkwardly asks, that bag wasn't important? Yeah. Uh, probably because we were trying to lower it down to defuse some bombs. It's like, no, that was just um, shark food to distract the sharks. In case we fell in the water. <laughs> just in case. You never know. Uh, my, my lunch was in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, she takes them down into the engine room, where uh, clearly the engines aren't running, by the way. Yeah, because this, this ship is docked right now. Yeah, the the you know, uh, they show whenever they show the establishing shots of the ship, they show it moving. It's usually the same exact establishing yeah. shot every time too. But these engines are definitely not running because you can it, hear anything that anyone's saying. Exactly. Oh man, it would just be deafening in there. And uh, but you know, it's, it's it's obviously it is an engine room, which is cool. Like yeah. they're they're in the engine room of a ship, but. Uh, I don't even know what ship this would be because this is clearly the engine room of an actual ship. So it could be the SS Lane Victory that they use later Again. in the series and and uh, that they've used as an establishing for a ship earlier. Cause could, I, it could I, be the Queen Mary too, right? It could be, yeah. It could be any number of, of uh, large ships, but they're definitely actually on board a ship at least. Yeah. Uh, she takes them down into a section of the engine room where that's where they found the bomb. Right. In, this, in this fake control panel, and they, they take it off. And that's when you first get this little glimpse of the crazy, intricate bomb. It's got tubes of fluid and yellow powders and yeah, all kinds of flashing lights. This, to me, is one of the images of MacGyver that's burned into my brain, is the image of this bomb. Yeah. That it just has so many parts to it. Yeah, it's um, got, like, five different kinds of triggers mm-hmm. um, that all kind of, like, have a domino effect. Yeah, it, it, it's it's just basically like an impossible to defuse bomb. Yeah. Even uh, and I don't know if had they paid the money legitimately, if Vikings still would have probably blown them up, right? I mean, well, I, I think he knew they weren't going to pay him legitimately because that's not a thing that we do in America. Yeah. You don't, you don't give money to the guy that's asking for it and and not keep track of where the money is going. Mm-hmm. Um. At the very least, though, there was the technology to put, like, an exploding paint packet in this money. Right. Like, the same way you would do with a bank robber. So it's weird that they didn't at least put that in there in case somehow he got the money without right, them noticing. Right. Like, if some gunman came in and just killed everyone at this train station. Although, Donahue, having been a part of it, would know that it was in there. And right. And would know. Because if, if someone, no one takes the money, they still need to get the money back, so there must be a way of diffusing it. Yeah. Of, opening it in such a way that the paint doesn't go off right <laughs> i love that scene in raising arizona yeah <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh so while they're just kind of examining the bomb macgyver and charlie are debating who's gonna who's gonna deal with it but well let's see who should uh who should deal with this the expecting father mm-hmm. um 
or who's like on the verge of bankruptcy or the guy that does this as a hobby who's not connected to anyone yeah he's got no he's got nothing to lose <laughs> but that's when the the twist comes in that they find another bomb right on d deck which then when they show it on a map it's, it's a, on the same deck yeah. as they are he's like where's d deck and it's like well a deck of a ship is a horizontal plane. Yeah, slice. So this is, we're on D-deck right now because this is D-deck at the end of the ship. And right yeah. Now we're at D-deck at the front of the ship. Um, she, she says where they are now is below the waterline. And D-deck is over here, even though, again, like I said, it's the same, same image on the map. Yeah. So now they're both forced to split up and go at this bomb together. And they throw a makeshift toolkit together from uh, just whatever they can gather. They got some medical instruments from uh, the doctor of the ship, yeah, uh, who had a dental probe. I, I, I always wondered like how how kind of stocked these medical things are on a ship. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, if someone breaks a tooth on a ship and you need to deal with it right now, they must be prepared for something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, yeah, he takes the the needle and he he probes it like he puts petroleum jelly on. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. So he's using to seal it. Yeah, I'd like well, to see. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little. No, bit. not really. I mean, look, this is this is this is where it's going. Yeah, but I mean, they they open up the bomb casing, and then Charlie gets led to the second bomb, mm-hmm. and it's kind of revealed that these are identical bombs. Right. Um, and then Charlie notices that they have like this uh, a seal around the outside of them mm-hmm. that he first suspects is like an an additional explosive. Yeah. Like a part of of the whatever the exploding element is of this bomb. But uh, MacGyver actually, like, look, it looks like he tastes it. Like, he mm-hmm. runs his finger along it, and then he licks his finger, and he says that he thinks it's a silicon base. Yeah. But before they before they part ways, they do this really kind of awkward salute where MacGyver kind of goes to look like he's going to shake his hand, but then pulls away into a salute, and Charlie's response is just to give a thumbs up. Yeah. Like... <laughs> it's like, we should have done a second take of this. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what were we doing? I mean, that happens to me all the time when, like, I go to, like, fist bump or high-five someone and it ends up being, like, some, I, we both had different minds of what we were going to do. And you just give him a thumbs up. And you <laughs> turn up. around and explode. Uh, so Charlie starts poking at the, the seal. Right. There's, there's like, a yellow powder in a basin mm-hmm. inside the bomb that you can see through the glass face of it. And they decide they need to get a test to see what this powder is. And so he takes the dental needle, mm-hmm. um, and he coats it in uh, petroleum jelly to to keep the seal as he's punching it through this the silicon, um, whatever seal. Is, yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever they're using around the outside of it. And then uh, he gets it really close to the powder, but then suddenly there's like a burst of air, mm-hmm. and he understands that this is a this is a vacuum. The entire inside of this bomb is a vacuum. Yeah, so the the burst of air blows the powder all over the place, which it's a phosphorus powder, so it ignites. Yeah, when it, uh, when the air. Yeah, and then the ignition of the phosphor powder sets off another element of the bomb, mm-hmm. um, and then the whole thing goes off. Yeah, so Charlie is is killed in the explosion. He he, yell, he yells to Mac over the radio that it's a vacuum, to 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 warn him. Yeah, as soon last... as he sees the leak, he starts shouting. It's a vacuum, Mac! The, when the bomb goes off, though, it it doesn't seem to disable or or affect the ship in, in too much of a way. They seem to be able to contain any kind of damage. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the whole plan is for all these bombs to go off simultaneously. So, Is I that met, the, Well, yeah, I guess if they're all 
on timers. Yeah, so I imagine that the simultaneous triple explosion of sorry, getting ahead of our, that they will find another bomb um, would be enough to cripple and destroy and sink the ship. Yeah. Um, but uh, just one of them going off seemed to be okay at least in the in the meantime. Yeah. So they have this kind of like outside moment where MacGyver is grieving over over Charlie, kind of just staring at the water, trying to take in what his next next plan of action will be to tackle this uh, vacuum. Um, he brings up this story of that they felt like they were invincible in Vietnam and that they were going for the all-time diffusing record. Which he never actually says what the record is. Yeah, he says that they made it to 51 and that Charlie just laughed. And I, I, I assume that that means that they that they beat it. Or, or that the record is 52 and it's funny that they're leaving now and they were that close. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no closure to that anecdote. Yeah. Uh, so if anybody knows the all-time bomb-diffusing record in Vietnam... <laughs> Uh, circa, let us know. Circa 1970s, I guess. I guarantee you that there was not. It would be it would be late 60s, I think. Was there a hurt locker situation yeah. with MacGyver? And I don't Charlie? think any bombs in Vietnam looked like this. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be to be clear, I don't think they had the technology to have a phosphorus powder in a basin and a complete a, in, vacuum yeah. with like acids and test tubes suspended above it and all these other triggers and to hide it, it somewhere yeah this a bomb in vietnam was just a bomb an explosive yeah. in a shrapnel casing and that was i don't think they had time bombs like this yeah certainly not this complicated i don't think these uh, time bomb this complicated exists anywhere <laughs> yeah it, it's it's purely for show yeah or Purely for arrogance, I, I you know it, it's you, you see it in like Die Hard three, yeah, yeah, um, just like really super elaborate bombs, which I love as a as a gimmick for a show or a movie. Yeah. I think it's great. I, I think it's it's always better to have this really imposing force that you know is going to be difficult. It's yeah. not it's not just cut the red wire. Right, it's, right, right. It, <laughs> there's like a bunch of green. <laughs> oh, there's like a bunch of green. <laughs> There's a green one. Oh, there's like a bunch of green. Mac's plan to defeat the vacuum involves these neon tubes. And I tried to look up what he was doing. Yeah, I, I it's not really clear here. Yeah. He, basically, when he's outside grieving uh, for, for Charlie's loss, um, she comes up to him and says, um, they just found a third bomb, I think, at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, uh, he he starts to put a plan together that because he knows now that this is a vacuum inside that he'll need something that won't displace the air. Yeah, but to me, if you have a gas contained in a tube, the moment you release the gas, it's going to be the same thing as yeah. like the gas rushing out is still going to blow the phosphorus. The only way that that I could see it working as a vacuum is if you were actually sucking from the other end of the tube. Yeah. When you had it over the the bin which you, of the phosphorus, which you wouldn't be able to do because it's a vacuum, right? You can't. I I, I was looking up the uh, concept of f there. There's these weird physical physics like demonstrations of these situations that don't occur really, which is the free expansion of a gas in a vacuum. Yeah. Because that's not something that happens all that often. Yeah. Um, and because a gas will occupy evenly a space yeah and i was just trying to find something like as if there was some kind of exchange but in in all cases it just seemed to be um just the gas going from one side to the other and evening out yeah uh well if the only way that it could work as a vacuum is if 
the vacuum in the actual neon tube is greater than the vacuum in the bomb. Right. Exactly. Which I don't think is possible. Yeah. Especially it, considering that it took them like a half second to even get their thumbs over the top of it once they got them scored and popped open. Yeah. Um, and and they seem to have so much suction, cause enough to suck up all that powder. Right. I don't know. It, it, and then when he throws the powder out of it, which, I mean, like, aside from displaying for the audience what the point of the phosphorus was, mm-hmm. I don't know why you would choose to intentionally ignite this phosphorus trigger right next to the bomb. Yeah. I mean, you have to you have to get it away immediately. Like, yeah. You have to yank it out and just fl- flick it away. So and, then... and it's also, it doesn't make a lot of sense that um, Charlie using a needle point that mm-hmm. was coated in petroleum was able to break the seal enough that air could get in from the outside but that when they yank out this half inch diameter tube from this neon sign or, or even when that, putting... that doesn't cause like well i guess at that point they'd already sucked up all the powder but but even when they're putting it in on the way in yeah it's where just it like, should have leaked uh, yeah, yeah. It, just, it just doesn't seem to be working yeah so now in in charlie's absence they need someone to to help defuse the bombs and Right away, the captain volunteers herself for that duty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think largely to relieve herself of the duty of manning the ship. Yeah. Because <laughs> sudden, very suddenly she's been put in charge of this. And i that's why I feel like she wasn't second in command. I think she was at least third. Yeah. Because she seems completely unprepared to take over this entire ship. She doesn't respond to captain. I mean, you wouldn't right away, but... She still she doesn't she doesn't really seem she seems kind of dazed a little bit. Yeah, it, well, she, everyone's been through a lot. Yeah, but yeah, she, def, she definitely doesn't feel like she's capable. Not capable. That's the bad choice of words. She she just doesn't feel like she's ready at right. least. Um, she's not prepared. But she does make this sacrifice in saying that I'll help you defuse the bomb. Right. And another, I think, a subordinate of hers is trying to wrestle bomb duty away from her mm-hmm. because he can kind of sense her distress and well and he also he, he calls her carol like like they have yeah, a like, previously um, existing relationship or that he's just not also not ready to call her captain like mm-hmm. just like accidentally calls her carol and then he corrects himself pretty quickly mm-hmm. um but yeah he he keeps trying to to wean her away from the, um, from the bomb duty but um, she eventually wins the argument and just says, like, you're more than capable of handling the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do this with MacGyver. It's it's my job to go down with the ship if that's what's going to happen here. Yeah. Um, so then they head inside. At this point, though, uh, the DXS is preparing to make the monetary drop at a bus station. Vi- Viking had called in with a locker number and uh, let them know that this is where the money needs to go. No, no police. Just drop the money and go. But of course, they're not going to do that. They're going to try to, you know, they're going to try to catch him. Yeah. So they put the money in the locker, and uh, Agent Carlisle is the one who's like who's running point. Carlisle, with... who we had in Nightmares, or uh, yeah, he was like he was Pete's yeah Pete's like, assistant in Nightmares. Yeah, like assistant or like second in command or whatever. Yeah. Uh, he's but he's working with another agent who's like really kind of cocky. And like, let me hold that money. I never held. I never held six million bucks. I before. didn't even realize until the third or fourth time watching this episode that that guy was a red herring. Yeah. They're trying to set him up as the Viking character. Oh. And I didn't realize that until the last time I was watching it. Interesting. I I I did not get that. But it makes sense. Because he wants to see the money, and he's like really eager. And yeah. Then, and then he's outside when everyone else is inside, and then mm-hmm. they realize that the back of this. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, they put all the money in this locker at a at a train depot, and uh, and eventually they get a call from the Viking saying, 
I have the money and I don't appreciate you guys keeping an eye on it, so I'm not going to tell you how to defuse these bombs. Yeah. And that's when they realize the back of this locker opens up into the maintenance closet behind the locker wall. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point you're supposed to assume, well, there was only one guy outside, mm-hmm. so he must have taken the money. Um, and he really wanted to see it earlier. Yeah. And also there's a there's a little back and forth between him and Carlisle outside when he says uh, he says testing communications or something. And then he says, guess who? And I think that you're supposed to, as the viewer, hear him say, guess who, into a speaker and think, oh, that's the Viking. Like, mm. that's who we're supposed to guess who this is. But um, but I never actually thought that because I was suspecting Donahue from second one. <laughs> from having seen this episode. <laughs> or from having seen the feature film The Gauntlet before this episode. Even. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, when you use a bad guy from a bunch of things, then people assume that that's the bad guy. Yeah, it'd be like Dennis Hopper. It's like when you see Dennis Hopper in a movie, or yeah. you know, or like, you're watching any given episode of Law and Order, and you see a character actor whose name you know. Yeah, you're like oh, he did it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> this guest star who's in this episode. Yeah. Uh, Pete calls it in to Mac and lets him know that uh, the drop failed and that Viking's not going to tell him how to defuse it. So. Now they're they have less than an hour, I believe, yeah. to to figure out how to get the next couple of triggers on this bomb, which the next one is the these four tubes of what he assumes is acid right away, and is revealed once he pops the cork off that uh, that it is acid. Yeah. The, now MacGyver looks at the acid and then comes up with a plan to neutralize it. Right. Because the basically how the acid is supposed to work, I guess, is that if you try to drain it. That it goes down these tubes and hits a bunch of electrical wires and causes it melts it melts the wires and causes a short. Yeah. So they need in order to drain it, they need it to be a neutral solution. So it just it won't melt the wires. it won't melt the wires. There's a weird um, when when he brings up the point that they need neon tubes, um, he says kind of offhand, "We're sure there's two, and there's no reason to believe they're not in sequence." Mm-hmm. What does he mean when he says that? I guess the the they're they're set to go off at the same time. In sequence made it sound like. They're set to go off like if one goes off, then the other one will automatically mm-hmm. go off when it does. But two of them have already gone off. Yeah. So that doesn't they don't it do, they don't seem to be going off in sequence thus far. Well, the the first one was just like a warning bomb because it was just like a bunch right. of C four. But the second one was definitely I mean it was identical to the one MacGyver's been working. Right, on. but that was triggered to go off, not timed to go off. I think the other, the 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 bombs were all set to go off at the same time. Right. Unless you tampered with it. Yeah. Well, I I thought he was implying that. They they would set each other off oh, okay. as soon as they went off. Yeah, but yeah Maybe yeah. that's not what he meant. Uh, I don't it's, think it's that's what he meant. Entirely clear. But that would make more sense yeah. if they were designed to all go off if one went off. Yeah. Because if they're if, all trigger triggers for each other. Yeah. That 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 would do the most damage. At the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Viking really messed that one up. Yeah. Not when, so smart, is he? Because <laughs> 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 Donahue has that great line when uh, he's at the locker. He's yeah. like, he's smart. He's too damn smart. <laughs> and when they get the call that um, Viking has the money, apparently, mm-hmm. they immediately freak out and start to swarm the locker where he he told them to place it. So we have Carlisle and we have Donahue are in the room right. who run to the locker. But there's a third agent there that was posing as a blind guy. 
Like he has a dog and a cane mm-hmm. and he's mm-hmm. got glasses. And it's like I you don't even realize this guy is a part of their plan until that second when yeah. suddenly the three of them get up and run to the locker. I just love that. Oh, suddenly there's a secret agent that's this blind guy in the room. <laughs> like I wonder if he was just an extra and they were like, you know what, when these two run for the thing, can you just get up and run to it too? And then yeah. we'll just have you be an undercover agent that nobody realized was here. Well, with with, with like, and he's got a German Shepherd. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is you know like so like it would be it would be in line with what they were doing. Right. Yeah. And then he's like, "Sure, which way are they going? I can't <laughs> see anything." I'm I'm an actual blind extra. I'm a blind extra. Um, and when she's sitting in front of this bomb, she she does over the intercom say, she asks for the doors to be dog shut which is like a naval term for well i mean it's it means bracing the door but it's used uh specifically on ships mm-hmm. but um the implication is that if these doors are properly braced and shut that the explosion would be contained right to the room that the bomb is in but isn't that but then why put a person in that room with the bomb let the bombs go off when they were supposed to <laughs> yeah. and then clean it up later uh and doesn't containing an explosion make it worse? Yeah, it doesn't. Isn't that how shrapnel is born? Yeah, like that, that's the whole premise of like Armageddon is that they can't just launch a nuclear bomb at it; it has to be detonated inside, inside of it. Yeah. Uh, I'm starting to I'm starting to question. <laughs> yeah, Vikings got some some flaws here, and, yeah. and Carol's not making a lot of sense. Uh, so now that they've identified the tubes of liquid as acid, yeah. Uh, they're just going to neutralize the solution. So he gets a lot of bases. He gets an oven cleaner and some milk uh, to mix them together and to hopefully to just, you know, you pass it into a base and then it neutralizes or yeah. at least becomes more basic, which yeah. you don't want it to be too basic because uh, that's just as bad yeah, <laughs> as yeah, acidic. Yeah. Um, but hopefully find a, a good neutral ground. Uh, yeah, you don't want to clean your skeleton. <laughs> Um, they start pouring this like concoction into the tubes and, uh, you know, like there's, there's a reaction. The tubes are becoming cloudy. Yeah. He says, Oh, there's a reaction. It's like, that's not really a reaction. That's just clouding from milk being poured in something. (laughs) Exactly. If I pour milk into water, it's going to become cloudy. I don't call that a reaction. I just call it clouding. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really not clear how long this process is supposed to take because there's, there's like a constant bubbling and I don't know what that constant bubbling is supposed to be um, in the tubes of acid. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's like a pump in operation and it's just like... It actually doesn't make sense that there's a constant bubbling because there's nothing... The The tubes go up and they end. Mm-hmm. So it's flat on the top. Right. So if there's bubbles going up constantly, then that means that the liquid is slowly being drained out of that tube. It doesn't make sense. I yeah. think it's, it's all for show, so you yeah. just don't have a blue liquid. Right. I th- I think there's like this general uh, uh, trope, movie trope, that acid has to be constantly bubbling. And that well, it has to be a color. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's it's always like on the verge of boiling or bubbling. Yeah. And uh, uh, that's, that's how you know it's acid. It's yeah. like, ooh, it's, oh, that's, that's acid. Um, you can tell right there. Uh so the acid starts to become clear as the the cloudiness fades. The bubbles are probably helping mix the milk into oh, it yeah. faster. Oh yeah, that's even better. Like it's even better to have there. Uh, so they Good start. One Viking. Yeah, <laughs> Viking is the worst bomber ever. <laughs> um, oh, but there's this really great moment. So w- while they're waiting for the 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 acid to neutralize, Max starts asking some questions about Donahue to Donahue directly, saying, "Have you ever encountered anything like this before?" 
And he uh, says, well, the, there wasn't much left of that bomb, so we couldn't really determine yeah. how it was put together. And then, uh, But then he, Mac throws it to Pete and says, hey, Pete, remember when I get back, we got that golf game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Pete recognizes this as a code right. to, to get on a private channel with, with Mac. They're close enough friends that Pete knows Mac is not a golfer. You're not a golfer. Uh, so Pete makes up an excuse to go to another console and then, uh, you know, gets on the line with Max says, if you're on a scare channel and Mac just wants to, Mac suspects Donahue right away, but he wants Pete to run down a list of people who, who were on all these kind of weird, specifically unique bomb triggers. Right. To see who was on the team for each one, even though there were dozens of team members who was on each specific team right. when they encountered one of these triggers. I actually like the the line where Pete's calling him on the golf fly because he says, what's wrong? You haven't played a round of golf in your entire misspent life. Yeah. <laughs> I just like that line. It, it, it really goes to, to solidify their friendship. Yeah. Like they, they are long, they've been friends for a while now. Yeah. Now that the, uh, the acid has been neutralized, they drain it out and uh, the bomb appears to be powering down. And the lights stop blinking. And, and Donahue puts on a, a, a impressive celebration face. Mm-hmm. A, a, from Pete's perspective, probably. Yeah. At this point, he's just like, wow, you seem really happy that MacGyver defused this bomb. Well, because yeah. the bomb isn't defused, they start hearing like a, a secondary beeping coming from underneath the panel. And uh, when they lift it up, you just find like there's like a simple clock timer with two very unusual-looking fuses, which they very quickly identify as fuses. In fact, Carol's the one who says they're fuses. And, yeah. I mean, th- maybe maybe those are how... Maybe they look like... Some fuses look like that, and I just have never seen them. But yeah. to me, fuses are always like these old things that you just you twist in, yeah. um, or just like a piece of glass. I've never really seen like this really elaborate kind of fuse. I like it, though. Yeah, I cool. like how cool they look. It kind of looks like something out of the Star Trek engine room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, and it's like it's, it's yellow and blue. Yeah. Uh, when the bomb powers down initially and everyone's excited, uh, Pete gets back on the private line with uh, Mac because he's he's given like a sheet of paper, and that's when we find out that Donahue was the one who was on all those uh, specific teams, which we and MacGyver suspected the entire time. Yeah, including the the bomb in which he lost his leg was the acid trigger bomb. And actually. At this point, I don't understand why Pete didn't get it, mm-hmm. that that was who he suspected. Yeah. Because he just asked you to get off of the line with Viking, like, two or three times. Mm-hmm. It's like, why did you think he wanted to have this conversation private if the only other person on the line was Donahue? Yeah. There was it, no one else listening in. Yeah, it was, it's, it, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, like, I would be suspicious yeah. Right away, and then when he when he realizes it, he's like, "Oh, why didn't you say anything?" And he's like, oh, "I was just a hunch." But now we have evidence, and it's like, mm. "No, we don't. You do, you, you <laughs> we still don't have, don't any have evidence." evidence. <laughs> um, which is important for when the bomb starts coming back to life, right? Because MacGyver throws it to Donahue, then says, "Donahue, I don't know what to do." Yeah, he gets to a point that there's a blue switch and a yellow switch, and mm-hmm. he got to pull one of them. One of them's gonna turn off the bomb and one of them's gonna blow it set up. it off yeah. and and he says you know he's goading donahue on saying i never made a call like this before help us catch this guy this is really important he he says if we can deactivate this bomb and look at it closely we can figure out who built it right well because 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 the bombers are so unique 
and art you know Pete, he calls it art and and Pete even says art it's yeah. a damn bomb yeah Pete's kind of offended at, at even comprehending it as art yeah but but Viking as Donahue as Viking realizes that oh gosh if they if they, if they do find this bomb they will basically track me down. They'll know that it's me. And then Carol's doing them no favors by reminding Viking, there's 1,100 people aboard this ship. It's yeah. like, uh, don't say stuff like that. <laughs> like, yeah. you might have a change of heart and then tell us the right switch to pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and... Uh, to cover his own tracks, he, yeah, he, he, he intentionally had, tells them the wrong Yeah, color. Yeah, he, tell, he yells to pull the blue. Pull the blue! Thanks a lot, Donahue. And... Uh, and so Carol is a little overzealous, yeah. and Mac has to quickly. In my footsteps. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Mac says, "I'm, pu- I'm going to pull the yellow." Like he even puts his hand on the blue one. Yeah. I was like to eh. fake us out. <laughs> I was like, "Don't, uh, I wouldn't, uh, I don't yeah. just leave it alone just in case." Um, and he pulls the yellow, and you know that completely disables it. And he yells to, to see. This is. Uh, this 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 would this really makes me nervous watching this episode. You don't know what her state of mind is because she's probably got her hand on the blue still because that's the one they think that they're supposed to pull. Yeah. And Donahue's yelling, "Pull the blue!" Yeah. Um. In both of their ears. Yeah, and I oh got in her hands. And on. she's down to two seconds. He, yeah. His was still at seven when he pulled his switch. Mm-hmm. Oh god, it's just anything could have gone wrong in there. Um I but, mean for one Viking could have alternated the colors for the two different bombs. Yeah. Or if I were the Viking, they would both pull the switch. Yeah. Would, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter which basically, one. Basically, yeah. why give them a 50-50 shot at at incarcerating you and taking all the money mm-hmm. back? Cuz yeah, cuz if he's not going to give them the money, if he's not going to give them the diffusal instructions anyway, yeah. Then why even have the bomb be, be stopped? I guess it, just in case you accidentally set it off or something? Or you, Yeah, it, while you're in there, while you're in the ship a month ago. <laughs> this just in, a docked uh, cruise liner exploded. I always like, like the logistics of, of these gigantic elaborate cases, how he managed to sneak them into the bowels of the ship. Yeah. Hey, buddy, can you give me a hand with this? Like, they have to have a friend carry I think we down. decided that he, he pretended he worked for, like, an arcade company. And he was like, where do I put this centipede? <laughs> I got three more identical centipedes <laughs> to put in the engine rooms. <laughs> we're, we're the holes of the thinnest. <laughs> That's where they need to go. <laughs> That's where the people need to be the most thoroughly entertained <laughs> by video games. Uh, the bombs are deactivated, thank goodness. And uh, Pete, Pete, Pete is on it. He grabs onto you, and he Pete immediately pulls out a gun that he has on his person. Yeah. Like, it's just so awesome that Pete just carries a gun all the time, even when in the office. Yeah. He's got a gun on him. And I'm impressed how quickly everyone else in the room catches on. Mm-hmm. Because if MacGyver had just defused a bomb and Pete looked really pissed off and pulled out a gun, I would assume Pete was the mastermind. <laughs> but at this point, Donahue has also, like... Shouted, pull the blue, yeah. loud enough for everyone to hear his insistence. Yeah. So, but, I mean, I would have just been like, hey, look... You know, you you tried, and and it's a good thing they didn't listen to you. But obviously, you weren't trying to kill them. You had a fifty fifty shot. Mm-hmm. He just asked you what your gut was, and you had to give him an answer. So don't feel too bad about it. Yeah, I wouldn't be like, you were the mastermind. You it was you. I got this piece of paper that has your name on it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> the bombs are de- the bombs are diffused, but then so Carol and MacGyver have this moment at the end where she says, you know, MacGyver needs like a vacation. He says, well, I can recommend a cruise. I was like, and he's like, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm not like, going to go on the cruise liner that I just diffused a bomb on. Uh, yeah. People are dead and there's like parts of the ship that are at least semi damaged. This cruise is not going to go on. This ship is haunted by Charlie now. 
yeah, like the, the this ship is going to put into port right away for repairs, and everyone's going to get off. This, yeah, this cruise is over. Yeah, um, people. Like the, I was like, what do you mean you can recommend a cruise? Like you, like the ship's gonna carry. Well, we don't on. know which one she was talking about. That's true. She seems to to have a really great cruise in mind. Maybe it's a completely different cruise. Plus, plus the bombs themselves are still on the ship. Yeah. Like they they are still heavy explosives. They're diffused, but they're still like ready to go at a moment's yeah. notice. And you have no idea when it's gonna start back up and explode again. <laughs> you didn't know before. That yeah, that exactly. Happen. Like you know, what the the ship takes a bad turn or gets like a knock. Yeah. It's a, it's an iceberg or something and just blows the whole thing sky high. Yeah. Uh, uh that's the end of the episode. That's the that's the little button for the end is That's it for countdown. And you actually got a chance to speak with Ellen Bree, who played Captain Carol Tanner. Well, acting captain, I guess would be it's it's a field promotion, so she's captain. I guess yeah. I shouldn't say that she's acting captain. Well, is there any difference in a field promotion and like a general promotion? Like would would she have been stripped of that rank? Yes. Afterward? Yes. After after they would put in and uh, things have been cleared up, she would no longer be captain. Like okay. Someone would take over or uh, until someone took over as as actual captain, she then she would revert back to her Because rank. she doesn't have like the technical qualifications? Yeah. She hasn't gone through the, um, the proper channels of being promoted. Okay. Interesting. All right. But and that's, here's the interview. <laughs> yeah. But here's our interview with uh, Captain, acting Captain Carol Tanner herself, uh, Miss Ellen Bree. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Absolutely. So, how did you first get started in acting? Oh, my. <laughs> um, how far back do we want to go? Um, I was Mother Mouse in a second grade play. All right. You know, when I was in my 20s and I was in New York um, studying and working, studying acting, working, and, you know, going to professional classes, um, I was also in therapy, which a lot of actors find themselves in at one point or another in their lives. Sure. And um, the subject of acting came up, and um, the uh, therapist I was going to said, well, um, when did you decide you wanted to be an actress? And I said, well, I've always wanted to be an actress ever since I was four years old. And I found myself over the course of, you know, my life saying, well, I've always wanted to be an actress. And then I'd sort of arbitrarily say, well, since I was four, you know, ever since I was four, I've always wanted to, ever since I had the ability to think about it. And um, so that particular session, the shrink paused and looked at me and said, what happened when you were four? And I was like, I I had never thought about it. You know, it was sort of a knee jerk since I was four. And I, I had the most incredible, powerful, visceral reaction to it. I mean, I, I started to really get shaky and I just, it was like one of those incontrovertible truths. And I looked at uh, the therapist and said, oh, my God, my brother was born when I was four years old. <laughs> and it was like, well, I guess I still wanted to be the center of attention. And, <laughs> um, and you know, at that point, it was more of a fantasy, I, I suppose, than any kind of reality. But I always was 
the one commandeering my brothers and my cousins to put on pageants in front of the family. I always cast myself very well. I was either the queen or the princess. But <laughs> uh, anyway, no, I was always that way, and I was always looking for summer, uh, you know, amateur theater groups to get into and junior high school plays and high school plays and and so on and so forth. So it was it was uh, a dream that that was um, early in my life. Sure. Did you audition for MacGyver? Ah, uh, you know what? I honestly don't remember. That was at a time when I was, you know, a series regular on Saint Elsewhere, and I auditioned for some things and other projects. Uh, it went to straight offer, and I honestly can't remember um, if it, you know, we're talking a long time ago. Sure, yeah. I can't remember if I auditioned or if it was a straight offer, but, um, hey, <laughs> I got the job one way or the other. My theory was that it had been an offer be just because you had done several appearances on The Love Boat previously, and this episode takes place largely on a cruise liner, and so I thought maybe they just had you in mind for it because of that. Well, that's interesting. I actually did three guest shots on Love Boat, um, but of course never played a captain, always right, yeah. played a passenger. I'm not sure if there was a connection there or not. I I suspect it had to do more with the fact that, um, you know, I, I, I had a series regular job on another television show. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're probably right that, that it was uh, one of those that, that was an offer. Which is wonderful, honestly, when you're an actor and you get to a place where people are offering you jobs without having to go in for the audition, because in many ways the audition is more nerve-wracking than um, the actual job. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very nerve-wracking to go in on an audition and then you get the job, and then that's a whole other, uh, oh my God, now what am I going to do? <laughs> a whole other bundle of nerves. Job. Yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, that was it was a wonderful, wonderful experience working on that show. Um, do you recall any memorable stories from the set? Well, from the set, um, I have to tell you, it was a wonderful set. Richard Dean Anderson, or as everybody called him, Ricky. Um, Ricky was great to work with. He was um, warm and friendly and accessible. And um, there was really no ego issues on that show. The the entire um, crew, and, you know, the show is basically um, Ricky's show, and so he really set the tone. And he was just very down-to-earth and um, low-key, and it was a pleasure working there. The only thing that was a little unusual, well, I shouldn't say the only thing. There was a lot of things that were unusual <laughs> about that that experience. Uh, one of the unusual things was that um, for my episode, and I suspect for a lot of the episodes, uh, they did it on locations. And so you weren't going, you know, into a studio onto a st soundstage. Um, which is where most television shows, at least the um, the majority of the scenes are shot. This, sure. on the other hand, was done on a real ship down in um, 
I can't remember if it was San Pedro or Long Beach. Terminal Island is uh, what comes to mind. Now, I can't remember if Terminal Island is considered San Pedro or, or Long Beach. My guess would be that it is because the previous episode was, was shot mostly in San Pedro, and they've done other episodes entirely in San Pedro. Right. So this was down there. It was aboard an actual ship. And so to get to work every day was uh, just a huge commute down to this ship. But it also uh, gave it an authenticity that you wouldn't have gotten had it not been done on a, on an actual ship. And sure. so it was kind of fascinating going um, down to San Pedro Terminal Island area and working aboard a, a an actual cruise ship. That was kind of cool. Um, it did present a number of challenges, once again, that you don't get on a soundstage. Sure. In that it's very cramped quarters. You know, some of, like, uh, the scene in the engine room. Uh, yes, I cheated. I watched the episode again <laughs> to refresh my memory. Um, but it's a good thing because, you know, a lot of memories came back. Sure. Um, but, like, the room in the, uh, the, um, the scene in the engine room and the scenes where, you know, we're um, diffusing the, the two bombs, it was done in very tight, constricted, uh, I would even say claustrophobic sure. uh, spaces, and that was very challenging. And the other very unique thing about this episode, uh, you know, for me as an actor was that it was almost all in close-up, the diffusing the bomb, and sure. it was very technical and very precise, and so, you know, your hand movements, the, the removing of this or that, the extreme close-up on my face and on uh, Ricky Dean's face as we were going through this, it was very small, focused, precise, quiet kind of work, and it, it, it required a precision that you don't normally have to, you know, have when you're shooting a scene. Sure. So it, it created, uh, you know, it, it presented some challenges that were, um, you know, wonderful to do. And, um, but it was also, it was like very tiny work. You know, the, the, the majority of the stuff I did was in a very teeny tiny confined space working with that. And of course the camera was on the other side of the bomb I was diffusing. And right. so everybody was, you know, uh, within splitting distance of each other. <laughs> Uh, which, which actually, you know, and then as an actor, you have to pretend no one's there, and they were like, you know, within, you know, a foot of my face. Yeah. So, um, so it presented some challenges, um, but you know, that's that's exciting. Yeah, to definitely. Have something uh, different to do like that. <laughs> the one thing that R Ricky, I don't know if that's jarring for people to hear me call him that, but that's how I knew him. That's how he's uh, been referred to in other interviews, too. So. Uh, okay, well, he was either called Rick or Ricky or Ricky Dean. Um, 
And in any case, um, the only thing that we were lamenting pretty much the whole time was how damn gorgeous the weather was. Because <laughs> we're supposed to be heading into a typhoon, right. and the whole premise is nobody can be rescued because there's a typhoon. And the weather was magnificent, even <laughs> as they tried to make it cloudy. I mean, you should have seen the kind of lighting and shading they were trying to do. They were trying to make it cloudy and storm-like, but I don't know that it would because the weather, even, you know, in the final product, you know, it looked like a perfectly nice day, <laughs> which is what it was. Well, that's the problem with California. They never, it never gives you typhoon weather when you need it. Yeah, but um, it was, uh, yeah, I had a wonderful experience on that show. Uh, you were telling me something about uh, when you went in for your looping session. Yeah, uh, I had a wonderful experience shooting the show, followed by a very unsettling, uh, surreal experience doing the looping. Uh, and the looping, uh, do, you, do your listeners know what the looping, looping uh, session? Uh, sure, I, uh, I, I mean, in case, in case they don't, yeah, you, you can explain. Okay, when you shoot... Uh, a television show or a film, uh, sometimes the sound quality is not exactly what uh, what the producers want. And sometimes, though, because, you know, you're in a noisy environment. I mean, we were shooting on a ship. Yeah, in a um, harbor in San know, Pedro. Uh, you know, San Pedro, you know, noises and buzzers are going off. Helicopters are overhead. So sometimes the sound quality is not exactly as good as they want it. And so in post-production, after they've already shot it, sometimes they will bring the actors in to do what they call looping. And looping is where you go into a very quiet uh, sound stage. They'll give you a beep, beep, beep. And then the fourth unheard beep is when you start talking. And you basically are lip-syncing to yourself. Yeah. And then they lay that in uh, over the production sound. The, the looping gets laid in over it to improve the quality. But it also sometimes is used to correct a performance in that if they didn't like the way you set a line or they wanted more emotion or you know they they wanted <clears throat> they wanted a different uh line than the one that was in the production you know it's a way to improve things after the fact yeah we've we've also seen it used on on this particular show to completely replace voices of children where they weren't um, comfortable bringing in children for long recording sessions for looping and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, I there was a well-known feature film years ago that will remain unnamed where they didn't like the actress's performance and they brought in another actress who completely looped this person's entire performance. Yeah. So it was it was one person on the screen and another person's voice for the whole performance. <laughs> I don't know if you recall that, but I do. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure it's happened more than once. This was a rather famous one back back in the day there. But anyway, so the looping session uh, typically is several months, uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, after the actual production because it takes that long to edit uh, the film together and to get a rough cut of uh, what they're going to um you know, eventually put on the air. 
So uh, cut to uh, about a week before this uh, show was to air, I had my looping session. Uh, they only needed to loop a few lines of mine. And uh, I was driving on the freeway to the um, sound stage where we were going to do it. It's called an ADR stage where they do the looping. And I had the radio on driving to work. And um, the Challenger had just exploded, wow. um, the Space Shuttle Challenger. And honestly, I was driving to work, and I'm listening as, as you know, seconds before the Challenger had exploded, and I'm going to go loop um, a show about a bomb exploding yeah. and people dying. And uh, it was just, you know, this, well, everybody had a horrendous visceral reaction to it. And the idea that now I was going to go loop a TV show, I mean, it's just... Um, I I hate to say this, but the triviality of what I was doing, uh, you know, juxtaposed with uh, the horrendous tragedy that had just happened, it it kind of put me in a very surreal, out-of-body space. But then also, obviously, still having to show up for work and having to go in there and do something with a bomb. Of course, for my looping session, it, it brought home the immediacy and the emotion of it, um, because everybody was reeling from what had just happened uh, to the to the Challenger. Yeah, it might Space even have show. affected your performance. Well, I'm saying it did. I mean, everybody's emotions were very edgy and raw, and everyone was pretty dazed. And I I went on to the the sta- you know the looping stage and none other than Mr. Henry Winkler was there he yeah. was a very wonderful involved hands-on producer I, I nobody could be sweeter or warmer or more wonderful than Henry Winkler what a pleasure to work with him um and he was in the habit of showing up on on the looping stage because he was very interested in getting just the performance he wanted out of people. And uh, as as luck would have it, he decided to show up for my looping session. And so I spent the morning with Henry Winkler on the (laughs) looping stage. And uh, hopefully, hopefully he got the performance he wanted out of me. But also it was just... It was one of those kind of very out-of-body, surreal days where there I was looping a show about an exploding or multiple exploding bombs, and, and the sh- space shuttle had just exploded. It was it was very weird. Yeah. Um, two months after your MacGyver appearance, you actually appeared uh, alongside John Anderson, who has played MacGyver's grandfather in several episodes. Yes! Um, oh, on Indestructible Man. Right. I Man. With Scott yeah. Bakula and Joey Kramer. Right. Yeah, that was that was a, a wonderful shoot. Um, uh, and we did that up in Canada. We uh, shot that film up in uh, Vancouver. Yeah. Um, and uh, he played a sinister old man. He was evil. <laughs> <laughs> John Anderson. Hmm. 
I didn't realize he had played MacGyver's grandfather. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah and I can I can see there's a I, I could see the resemblance too. And it's between, funny. There's no relation, but they're both Andersons too. So yeah. it's, well, not only they're both Anderson, but you know they're both kind of tall and lanky and. You know, it, it's plausible. You when you when you match people up like that, it doesn't have to be a you know a, a super close match. But in that case, you could see it. You know, the same body type, and uh, of course the same last name. That's kind of funny. Yeah, they it definitely they they fit together. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and you also appeared in the original live action incarnation of the Spider Man series for CBS. I sure did. How how did that come about? Okay, I was, I was um, actually that's what brought me to Hollywood. Um, I was in New York doing whatever I could to to scrounge out a living as an actor. I was doing a lot of TV commercials. I was doing small jobs on soap operas and doing off-off Broadway plays and studying professionally, which I always did when I was in New York, and um, I had screen tested in New York because, you know, a lot of um, uh, TV companies, film companies, uh, producers, directors, not only look at the acting pool in L.A., but they usually went to New York and looked at the acting pool in New York as well. So it was not unusual at all to be auditioning for things that were going to be shooting in L.A. when you were in New York. And about a year, uh, it was approximately a year before uh, Spider-Man, I had auditioned and uh, gotten very close, in fact, screen-tested for a show called... Submariner Man, okay. which starred Patrick Duffy, and I had uh, it was it was very short lived. In fact, I'm not even sure if it went past the pilot. You know, I'd have to do some research on that. But there was a show called um, Submariner Man, and I did a screen test for it. And then, lucky for me, the executive producer was executive producing Spider-Man. And he apparently remembered my audition and my screen test from Submariner Man. And so they called me in in New York to uh, test for Spider-Man. And I was then flown out to L.A. to do a final test, and it was down to about four actresses, um, three of them from L.A., and I was flown in from um, New York and went to do a screen test at the CBS Television City is where the testing was. And over the course of the weekend, they figured it out that they wanted me. That's which awesome. Was fabulous. Um, it was also the best way to come out to Los Angeles in that the production company paid to relocate me. Sure, and like yeah. I said, it, it wasn't like I was like rolling, rolling in cash then. I was just, you know. But at least you came out with a job already. Booked. Yeah, no, no, I, they relocated me, so I didn't have to pay moving expenses. And I came to L.A. with a job, in fact, a fabulous job, um, starring in a nighttime TV series opposite 
Spider-Man, who was played by Nicholas Hammond. I mean, it was really a dream come true. I was, you know, I was kind of walking a couple of feet off the ground for months. I was, <laughs> I was just so excited. Um, and that's uh, Spider-Man as a Marvel character on the DC side. One of your earliest credits is an IMDb stunt credit for the original Superman film. Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was curious if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, that was uh, that was. It's it's interesting how one thing begets another, begets another, begets another. What happened was. Um, uh, as I mentioned, I was in New York. That's where I started off professionally. And I was working my way up the food chain, doing, you know, commercials, theater, small roles on soaps, bigger roles on soaps. Um, and then uh, there was one season where Kojak shot in New York. It was, I don't know, it was six, seven years into the show where Telly Savalas is from New York and very much wanted to shoot the series one season in New York, and it was a hit show, and so he got his way. And so the entire, um, you know, core group from Kojak came and shot an entire season of the series in New York City. And I was lucky enough to be cast as an actress, as an actor, um, in one of the roles early on in the show. It was maybe the second or third episode of the season that they shot in New York. I was cast in a role where I played opposite George Maharis. And he was supposed to be my boyfriend, but also a thug. And he had to beat me basically to a pulp and land me in the hospital where I go into a coma and the character dies. But, um, oh, wow. But what happened was they were very new to New York, and the stunt coordinator of the show, a man named Bob Browser, was also from L.A. and didn't have a core group of stunt women that he used in New York. And this was the first episode that called for a woman doing a, you know, a, you know, a character that a female character needing to do a stunt because it was quite a showy fight scene. So he asked me if I would be interested in doing my own stunt work. And I had, you know, I was very athletic. I was kind of a jock. <laughs> I'd done tumbling and gymnastics in, in high school. And he made it sound like, you know, it was going to be a choreographed dance. I'd get stunt pay for it, which was, you know, on top of the pay I was getting as an actor. And he'd, he'd you know, pad me up and, it, you know, he'd take me through it and teach me how to do it. And it seemed kind of cool to me. I didn't even think about how dangerous it was. I thought, yeah, this sounds like tumbling. This sounds like something I do. So I agreed to do my own stunt. And, in fact, it was very well rehearsed, incredibly choreographed. Um, things were made out of foam and balsa wood, and so it, it and everything was padded. And when we actually went and did this fight scene, it just got my adrenaline <laughs> rushing. It was 
Very exciting, and apparently it looked very showy because when he came back after seeing the dailies, he said, oh, my God, it looked great. You did a fabulous job. Um, it, it was really a showy fight scene. And so after that episode, he approached me and said that he really didn't have a, a core group of women, uh, stunt women, that um, he could call upon. And he said that he would be more than happy to train me and teach me on-the-job training, that um, he'd like to be able to call me in to double other actresses for the rest of the season if I had any interest, especially since I'd already played an on-camera you know, characters sure. that died. It's not like they could have cast me again as an actor. <laughs> and I thought, hell, it beats waitressing, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, where do I sign up? So um, consequently, just it just sort of was co co you know a lucky a lucky coincidence for me that they didn't have a stunt woman who they called in to double me. I doubled myself, and <laughs> all of a sudden I was on that Kojak set at least for six or seven episodes. Oh wow! Doubling other actresses and learning how to do stunts, and the at that time we're talking um, in the. Um, you know, we're talking in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, no, late 70s. We're talking in the late 70s. At that time, uh, the stunt community in New York City was small. I mean, it was a small, core, you know, tight group, mostly men. And they all knew each other. And, in fact, these uh, stuntmen were, you know, um, stunt coordinating other shows, other films, and also uh, working on Kojak because, you know, it's a small community. So sure. uh, Bob Browver would call in different uh, stunt guys who had their own gigs going. And I got to know this core group of guys. And so they started calling me to do stunts for them when they were stunt coordinating. I ended up doing stunts on some soap operas. Uh, I think One Life to Live was one of them. I was uh, doing uh, stair falls, you know, falling down stairways. And, oh, wow. Uh, doing fight scenes. And also uh, I was doing car chases. Uh, it was fabulous. It was like this, <laughs> uh, this learning curve, and I was getting paid to do it. And then what happened, the, the best part was the, the guy who was stunt coordinating the Superman movies, the New York sequences of Superman. And one and two was someone I also knew from doing stunt work on Kojak, and he asked me to do the stunt double work for Margot Kidder um, for the Superman one and two movies for the New York sequences. Oh wow! Um, uh, the Lois Margot Kidder played Lois Lane right. in Superman one and two. I was the Lois Lane stunt double. <laughs> um, and so that was how I started doing stunts on Superman. And, in fact, I do have a small, funny aside story. Um, they used the, the Daily News building to uh, be the, the, the Daily, Daily Planet. Planet. 
And so, uh, consequently, the Daily News took full advantage of that <laughs> by doing lots of uh, photo spreads of Superman shooting in New York and lots of, um, you know, articles on Superman, especially since, you know, they were constantly photographing their building in New York. And I had a scene to play where I have to fall out of a window um, fall onto a um, an awning, and then, um, or actually, I think what happens is Superman, with his X-ray vision, uh, somehow burns something, and it pops the awning open to break Lois Lane's fall. And I, uh, I had to jump out of a window, jump onto this awning, and then do a flip onto a cart of fruit, scored fruit, right in front of the Daily Planet building. <laughs> and um, it ended up being on the front cover. Uh, and yes, I have it <laughs> in my office framed. <laughs> it ended up being the front cover of uh, a New York Daily News newspaper. And in fact, I'm walking into my office now. It was the Daily News New York, July 12th, 1977. Tuesday, July 12th, 1977. In fact, do you know it was cloudy and showers today with the low 80s? Sunny <laughs> tomorrow. Anyway, it was the Daily News, New York City, and the uh, there are two things on the front page, and uh, one of them is about Mayor Abe Beam, but the second half is photographs of me in front of the Daily News building <laughs> doing this stunt, falling into fruit, and it looks like I'm trying to kill myself. <laughs> and the title is Lois Leaps. It's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's super stunt woman Ellen Bree who leaped, if not to stardom, at least into a fruit vendor's cart cushioned with foam rubber during the filming of Superman in front of the news today. <laughs> blah, 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 on and on and on. The funny story is um, my uncle was at a lunch counter um, having a cup of coffee and kind of, you know, looking over someone's shoulder at, at the front page of the Daily News. And he sees a couple of photographs of me. He sees me falling through the air. He sees the name Ellen Bree. He freaks out, calls my, it was my great uncle, calls my grandmother screaming, thinking that I, committed suicide. Oh, no. <laughs> so, anyway, he was like, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, because you don't get on the front page unless, you know, you kill someone or you kill yourself. Or so. you're in a movie, apparently. Or you're, or you're in a movie. <laughs> um, so that was, that was my funny story. Well, if we can find that, uh, that cover, we'll definitely try and put it up on the website when the, when the episode comes out. Well, I happen to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I can take a photo of it. Okay, sure. I don't know if that's going to work for you or not. Otherwise, I guess you can find it archived. Daily News, New York, Tuesday, July twelfth, nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we can find that. Find that yeah. somewhere online. But uh, uh, yeah, that was fun. So the stunt, the stunt stuff actually was in in the middle. Not in the middle. The the stunt stuff was 
within my career as an actor, a lot of times people who are aware of the stunt things think that I started as an, a stunt person and, you know, worked my way into being an actor, but it really wasn't that. I was an actor, and then this sort of, this opportunity came yeah. along, and so it was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and so I did that, but then uh, when I came out here and I was shooting... Um, the Spider-Man series. I did some of my own stunts, but, you know, at a certain point, you reach a, uh, you reach a point in your career where you're going to focus on one thing. Sure, and, that makes sense. And, and I didn't want to, you know, put myself out there as a stunt person. I wanted to be, you know, an actor. And also, like you said, in, in New York, the, the pool of, of female stunt people was probably thinner than in in los angeles i feel oh, like much thinner much thinner very few women and you know it's it's kind of a closed club yeah. you know the people get very tight they got each other's backs and and you know my my first love was acting so so yeah. i gave it up and um i'm still here to talk about it yeah <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for speaking with us today. It's it's really been great. I'm sorry we went a little bit longer than I expected. Well, this is great. Um, I wish you a lot of luck, and I will get that photograph to you later today. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Yeah, that was really great. Yeah. Um, God, so much, so much to say. Uh, I mean, obviously, like, uh, the big things for me are, are the Superman stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I am still such a huge fan. That was of... kind of a goldmine question, too, because I had no idea that... I mean, I just knew she had done stunts on the movie. I had no idea mm. she was actually Margot Kidder's stunt yeah, woman for that's that. that's so great. So, Because there's a lot of stunts, and there's the big famous stunt with Margot Kidder uh, falling, falling off, off the, the Daily building. Planet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- that's that's big. That's yeah. big news. And uh, and she made the news. Yeah. <laughs> she actually, the New York Daily News. She made the New York Daily News, which is the Daily Planet. So in a sense, she made the news of the Daily Planet. And you can find a, a picture. Uh, uh, Miss Bree was, was uh, kind enough to send along a picture she took of the actual framed front page news um, that she yeah. has in her office. So you can find that on our website. Another big thing uh, was her whole her, her conversation about the Challenger. Right, yeah. Um, I mean... Uh, it affected a lot of people like just like you know it's a national tragedy and then um my my personal story for this is my mother was in the teacher in space program when they were still selecting candidates and she my mom went out went to space training like she was in the running and obviously she didn't make it but she was on a very short list yeah she was on a very short list and like we have all her like training paperwork and stuff like that and, and it's just like oh my gosh um, so whenever I hear the challenger, it's like it, it affects me very close. I yeah. mean, it's just like God dang. Um, but to be to to have to go to to record lines about explosions and dying, it'd be like doing something like that, like on nine eleven. Uh, it, it's sure. It's just a difficult. It's a difficult time for everybody. It's it's the same mentality of just like. Man, people, a bunch of people just died. Yeah. Like, very, in a very public way. Mm-hmm. And it's just that much more terrifying to go and record about explosions yeah. the same day. But on lighter notes, I mean, God, she's just such a career she's had, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, she was just a delight 
to, to listen to. It, I like this episode a lot. Um, it's a fun one. It, uh, but this is a unique, a new, a unique skill for MacGyver to have is this bomb diffusing past, and uh, it makes good use of his ability to improvise things with mm-hmm. ingredients that they might have around. Exactly. Uh, so you know, he, we've we've seen him deactivate a nuclear missile with a paperclip. And now we've seen him deactivate an elaborate bomb with some non-fat milk. With non-fat milk. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I uh, every time I think about that bomb, like the the the, the way it looks and everything like that, it's yeah. just it's so cool. It is a cool looking bomb. All right. Well, I think that about wraps up the countdown. Um, if you want to share any of your thoughts or on this episode or future episodes, you can hit us up on uh, Twitter at Opening Gambit, all one word. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash phoenixfoundationpodcast. And, of course, you can always find us at phoenixfoundationpodcast.com. Also, if you're enjoying the show, feel free to review us on iTunes. And uh, stay tuned for next week's show. We're going to be covering Season 1, Episode 15, The Enemy Within. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.